Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast with Cincinnati host Stephen Brittingham. Experience meaningful and in-depth interviews with Hollywood's most interesting people. Enjoy the show. You can receive all the latest episodes of Hollywood and Beyond with Stephen Brittingham delivered to your favorite listening device by subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever happens to be your favorite podcast listening service. Don't miss out. Tune in. Clips appear courtesy of Paramount Pictures. Music appears courtesy of Tom McLaughlin and the Sloths, and Alice Cooper. Hello, friends and listeners. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast. This is host Stephen Brittingham, the director and screenwriter of Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. Tommy McLaughlin joins me to discuss not only the making of this film, but his amazing career that also includes music, acting, and pantomime. Tom joins me directly from Hollywood and shares his remarkable artistic journey with you, the listeners. Enjoy the show. I don't know how you talked me into this, Tommy. <laughs> Hell, I must be crazy. <laughs> you know, if the institution ever found out about this, they would haul our butts back in and straightjacket them. <laughs> Permanent. You didn't have to come, Haas. This is between me and Jason. I know, I know, I know. But I still don't get the therapy here. All you need to know is Jason's dead, right? <laughs> Seeing his corpse ain't gonna... Stop the hallucinations. Seeing it won't, but destroying it will. Jason belongs in hell. I'm going to see he gets there. friends and listeners, this is your host, Stephen Brittingham. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond Podcast. 
the director and screenwriter of Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives. Tom McLaughlin is my special guest today. I am absolutely thrilled. His artistic journey is astonishing, interesting, and by all means, impressive. In addition to directing and screenwriting, he has worked as an actor as well appearing in Disney's The Black Hole and Woody Allen's Sleeper. His talents don't end there, for he also has an incredible experience as a member of the band The Sloths. As teenagers, the band performed on stages at Pandora's Box and Whiskey-A-Go-Go, sharing the stages with The Doors and Pink Floyd. As if all of these accomplishments are not enough, my guest has a fascinating background involving pantomime. You might not have expected me to just say that. A true artist in every sense of the word. How did Tom start his artistic journey? Well, let's find out together. Tom McLaughlin, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, sir. Thank you so much, Stephen. I appreciate it. Love being here. Well, thank you. It's so nice to have you here today. I'm very excited to be speaking with you. And you are uh, joining me from a very interesting location in Hollywood. And you uh, let me know a while back that uh, you are actually Hollywood and above because of um, uh, your scenic view. Yes, I'm uh, here at the Hollywood Tower in, in, you know, good old downtown Hollywood out my back window i can see the hollywood sign and out my you know side window i can basically see all of the uh show business industry out there so you know i occasion because i'm kind of a born and raised hollywood kid uh coming up you know with the band in, in on the sunset strip and my father used to take me up to hollywood boulevard because it was a magical place for him and i'm still all these years later still kind of caught up in there is magic here you know, all the dreams that and, and how many people succeed and how many people find out it's, it wasn't for them after all. So it's, you know, both you know, wonderful and heartbreaking at the same time. But that's, that's what this town has always been. Absolutely. Excellent description. Well, a great place to start is often at the beginning. And I'm very much looking forward to speaking with you about Jason Lives, one of my favorite films of the series. You just did an outstanding job directing the film, and I'll share my reasons behind that later. But first, how about we start at the very beginning and perhaps let folks know out there where you are from and how did your interest in cinema or acting first develop? Well, I, as, as I said, I actually, not too many of us true natives who are in the business actually grew up here, but most of us who did uh, go into show business usually was a result of, you know, your parents or relatives or whatever. And I had a very unique situation in that my father came to Hollywood as uh, right after the war as a film student at UCLA, USC and kind of came out of that with, you know, the dreams of wanting to make movies. And in those days, uh, you know, in the, in the late 40s, early 50s, nobody came out of film school. It made no sense to people in this industry. So he ended up not accomplishing that dream, but it was sort of on to me. So as I said, I took his film equipment and would go into the old back lot 
like the MGM studios and the Hal Road studios and make films since I was the age of seven, you know, on the weekends, but, you know, trying not to get caught and take my friends and stuff. So I kind of grew up with that desire to do what he wanted to do. And of course he was very, you know, complimentary over the fact that I was accomplishing something, you know, at a young age that, you know, he wanted to, to, you know, his dream fulfilled. So it it started kind of there as as a wanting to be a film. Um, and then everything shifted for us guys, you know, come the early 60s when the Beatles hit and then the Rolling Stones and the Yardbirds and all these British groups. And suddenly the, the filmmaking desire changed into a desire to be a rock and roll star. And that kind of took me all through my team. And as you mentioned, you know, we opened for, you know, the Doors and the Seeds and um, any of the groups that played up and down the Sunset Strip at that time. And we were all 15, 16 years old. Then I felt like I wasn't, you know, being that original in what I was doing. I was still kind of copying, you know, the the singers that I saw, James Brown or, or Mick Jagger or Roger Daltrey from The Who. So I met the French mime Marcel Marceau when he came to Los Angeles to perform. And I told him what I was doing. And he said, why don't you come to Paris? I opened a school. I, you know, quit my my rock and roll career at that point and gathered together what little money I had in Paris at 19 to study with him. And it was an amazing life-changing experience to be, you know, a kid from California going over into Paris and not speaking the language and being around all these other young, you know, artists and musicians and things. Uh, Jessica Lang was over at the school at that time. She, of course, was completely unknown. She was, you know, a young student. And there was many young actors there that I met at that time. And then I came back after a year and started performing on the streets of Los Angeles as a mime and trying to come up with my own original material and and be different from the Marcel Marceau type of mime. That led me to a meeting with Woody Allen. did somebody to work with him on his robot moves for the movie Sleeper. That's sort of my lead in to get into the Screen Actors Guild and start acting. Um, And I did a lot of different work. Um, a lot of them were inside of costumes because of my mind training, or they were very, you know, unique kind of movement things or slapstick comedy things. But what I really wanted to do was write and direct films at that point, go back to what that early dream was and began to, you know, write scripts. It's one that went off, you know, in terms of getting made was a little low budget thing called One Dark Night, which was kind of a gothic horror movie. And that was the one that led Friday the 13th. And then from there, it went to the movie Date with an Angel, which was a romantic comedy about an angel. And then sometimes they come back, the Stephen King movie, and it kind of kept going to suddenly I turned around years later and went, oh my God, I've done 42 films. I don't know what happened and how to just, you know, focusing on on the future. And uh, then the big turn of events happened about, I guess it's been about seven years now, where uh, the Sloths had a song back in the mid sixties that, you know, was recorded, but was not successful. And it turns out that it kind of had a cult following. Um, and none of us had any idea. And they brought us kind of, you know, out of retirement 45 years and, you know, did, we did interviews and that kind of caused the band to get back together again. So here's a bunch now in our year olds going back and doing the hard rock rock and roll style that we did in the 60s and 
in it, you know, with as much passion, you know, as, as probably more so now than we did as, as kids. And I've been basically embody all the, you know, the magic and things that I did as a kid, you know, to, to earn money for my films and the mind and of course singing and, you know, dancing and performing. So it sort of has become kind of a compilation of everything. And then acting happening again, I've done a few films, um, about to go up to do a, a film in Seattle called Vengeance, um, have us, you know, a, a part in and, you know, also teaching as well uh, out at Chapman University, teaching filmmaking and film directing and uh, screen acting and things. So it's it's like so many wonderful things have occurred, you know, one thing leads to another and your path just keeps sort of shifting, you know, but at the end of the day, you kind of go, you know, well, this is what I'd love to do is, you know, is to be a performer and entertain. And hopefully, you know, you know, find that there are positive things to say to people like don't give up your dreams because so many of my dreams came true somehow later in life. And then some of the things that happened earlier on, I had no idea what they were going to lead to. So it's it's been, as Frank Capper once said, it's a wonderful life. It sounds like it. And congratulations on all that you have achieved over the years. Um very, very impressive. And thank you for sharing all that you did. Um, I really enjoyed uh, all that you shared and the wonderful descriptions. Well, if you don't mind, I, I was thinking when you described being on the back lot of MGM and you were, you know, you were, uh, I, I guess you could say daydreaming, so to speak, about filmmaking. I was just thinking what a yeah. fun experience that must have been when you look back. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was both fun and scary because obviously there was a guard and there was a guard dog. <laughs> so, you know, we had to, you know, you were doing these things, but always kind of looking over your shoulder to make sure you were. So it, you know, made it doubly, you know, exciting, just like when I was, you know, in school and I would, you know, ditch school and take a bus and go and see the afternoon matinee movies, you know, some horror movies, some comedies. And again, you're, you're, you're there and you're not supposed to be there. You're supposed to be in school. And I was doing, you know, something that, you know, was forbidden, which added, you know, twice the sort of excitement to it, you know, watching a movie in those conditions. So a lot of things, you know, you do, and there's like a little danger involved and it kind of, you know, cements that, you know, you really want to do this. You're willing to take that risk for something that you love. Well, Tom, I'm just curious. Uh, obviously, you are a, an artistic individual, and you've experienced different areas that um, an artist would experience, of course. But I'm just curious, as far as directing goes, as a young boy, did you ever find yourself watching a movie and kind of picturing it in your mind like, you know what, I would have maybe shot it this way? Not as a young boy, I was, you know, uh, it sort of was like, as a lot of people think, you know, it's the actors who make the movies, somebody just photographs it, but they make up the lines and they decide what they're going to do and things, you know, I didn't really understand the role, you know, of a director, although I did, you know, in my young age, you know, me and my friends, we took a director's chair from the back lot that was there and, uh, oh, you know, wow. that said director on it. So, you know, so we could, you know, sit there and turns out it was uh, John Sturgis's, the, the director that, uh, you know, did a lot of great Westerns and, and uh, Ice Station Zebra, not a number of, you know, big movies, particularly in the, in the 60s, 50s and 60s. And uh, years later, I met him, you know, and I said, yeah, I got a confession, Mr. Sturgis. I, I took your director's chair and he looked at me for a long beat and he went, 
oh, that's where that chair went. And I went, oh, my God, you remember that? And he goes, no, 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 I'm just kidding you. You know, I, you know, if it did serve you well, then great. You know, it's all yours. So, I mean, it was, you know, at least I had a nice little <laughs> ending to, to my little thievery there. But um, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's the directing thing kind of came once I became, you know, much more aware that, you know, it's, it's the director's medium for film. And, uh, but you've got to have something to direct, which then leads well, we got to write a script or have have a script that you can get a hold of. Um, so my all my early work were things that you know I wrote and directed, and uh, you know I've got another script that I've just written, which I'm you know putting out there um, because you know it's like as long as you keep coming up with things, you know you you just have to see if you can find a place for them. And of course, the thing with filmmaking is the expensive you know, business. So somebody has got to really feel like, you know, there's a profit in this, um, or you can just make small things on your own for your own artistic satisfaction. But I think all of us, you know, like feel that we can make things that actually get out there to the public and people can see and, and, uh, hopefully be entertained by. Well, Tom, as far as music goes, I'm wondering if the British invasion had a, well, I would probably say yes. It probably did have a huge influence on you, but I'll let you answer that. Did that have some sort of uh, impact on you uh, wanting to, you know, give your hand a try at at music as well? Yeah, that was really the the sole inspiration. To be honest, I mean, I loved Elvis. You know, I'm old enough that I saw Elvis on TV on the Ed Sullivan Show when I was a kid, and that really impressed me. So I would, you know, listen to his songs and would sing, sing along and, you know, want to, want to move and, and do that. But it wasn't until the Beatles hit and uh, that it really turned all of our heads around. It's like, these guys look like nobody we've ever seen before. You know, it was upsetting our parents and the older generation. So that must be good. And they <laughs> were doing music that somehow we could identify with. Um, and then, you know, the Rolling Stones, too, were the more the bad boys. And that also kind of worked in with, you know, the rebellious part of being a teenager. And all the groups, any anything basically that came from Britain, you know, my little group were all, you know, that was where we went. That's where we went for the inspiration. And only in time did we, re- they were just taking the music from the black artists in the South, you know, John Lee Hooker and, and, um, and, 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 uh, Buddy Guy and Albert King and B.B. King and all these great black performers, their music, their popularity helped these artists to get a shot back at into the public. This is where their inspiration came. So we sort of, you know, were the, you know, the next generation that were inspired, you know, by the Stones and stuff. And they led us, you know, to the, the originals. And it was a great period of just learning how people influenced and how the music you know, evolves over a period of time. And, uh, you know, we've continued now, um, all these years later, basically writing new songs that still are very much in that feeling of the British invasion, um, because that's kind of what we know. You know, that's what really is, you know, in our DNA now, that was the greatest, you know, influence to us and what, you know, we really felt one friend, if we wanted to have girls screaming and yelling and having fan clubs and stuff, you know, we needed to have our hair longer and we needed to, you know, play music that was in that feeling. And as a result of trying to have longer hair here in Los Angeles, I got thrown out of seven high schools for not cutting my hair. You know, it was, you know, in those days it was just, you know, hair could not 
you know, touch your ears even. And that just became another thing that my parents disowned me over the, the, with the rock and roll. Oh, it just my. seemed like in, in somebody else here. And, uh, you know, in time, all that, you know, went away and schools had no problem with, you know, with it. Um, so it's funny because now I still have that same, you know, longer hair. And I, I feel like it's like I, when I go to the university, I hardly see anybody that looks like me still, you know, that, that, that look is, you know, is still there, but not like it used to be, you know, particularly in the seventies and eighties. So, but I'm sort of, you know, holding on to the, you know, the old school look. And when people say, Hey, are you a rock musician? I go, yes, I am. Um, as opposed to years where I had it. And I was like, oh, I would love to then, but you know, it didn't quite happen, you know, but I, I direct movies. So it's like, I've got these dual, you know, careers that, uh, <laughs> I'd love to kind of go bounce back and forth between. Well, I'll tell you what, I grew up in the 80s. I was actually born in the 70s, Tom, but I grew up in the 80s. Mm -hmm. So I got to experience a lot of what you're uh, discussing, um, you know, lots of long hair with a lot of seniors or bands, and I got to experience all of that. And, and I was raised by my grandparents, Tom, but my biological mm -hmm. father, who I called Big Steve, his favorite band was the Rolling Stones. It was like, to him, they were just the best band ever. And when I was listening to your description, it kind of came back to me for a moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, then, and they're still going. They're still considered the they, rock They sure are, aren't history. they? Yeah. That, that's that's that quite extraordinary. It gives us hope. It gives us hope because they're still doing it in their you know, 70s. So, you know, we're figuring, okay, we still got some years, you know, that we can keep going. <laughs> at them and if they can do it you know we're, we're going to keep doing it too and they're still rock and rolling there, there's no doubt about yeah. it well i was thinking though uh, i mean the, the doors tom i mean wow um i at least wanted to ask you if you have any recollection or specific memories of i mean uh did you get to speak with uh jim or any of the band members at that time Oh yeah, I mean, you know, again, they were they were an up and coming group like everybody else. Stephen, we we didn't, uh, you know, know that they were going to be as big and as legendary. We knew their music sounded unique. You know, they definitely sound like everybody else. The big band on the Sunset Strip at that time was a group called Love, and you know, we performed with them. But they, them as you know the. But, you know, we did, I guess, probably about maybe four different shows with The Doors. And um, Jim was, you know, as, as you know, you've probably seen if you saw the movie and stuff, you know, he was yes. out of it quite a bit of the time. You know, and alcohol and drugs certainly were a huge part of his life and lifestyle. And um, so any conversations, you know, backstage were very you know, short and yeah, how you doing? Yeah, man. Yeah. Everything's good. Yeah. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of conversation, you know, in terms of getting to know him. Um, and the other guys were all very nice. And they're, when we first started playing with them, their first album had not come out yet. So there was no real even buzz about them. And then once the album broke and they took off, you know, then they of course, you know, became, you know, legendary quickly. Um, and Jen's performances and things were, you know, looked at as, you know, wow, you know, this is really, you know, music and art and, and poetry all wrapped together. But if you, you know, read any of these interviews about Jim, you know, he wanted to be a filmmaker. I mean, he went to UCLA, you know, to study film. And that's where he met Ray. And, you know, the band came out and a lot of his writings and lyrics were very much in a kind of a visual way, as he would 
since he would have wanted to have been a filmmaker, you know, he kind of created that kind of imagery. But the, the one door story that, you know, I share with a lot of people is we were performing at this place called the Cheetah, which was um, in the ocean, the Santa Monica ocean front. And uh, there was a very high stage that was in the center of this old 1940s music, um, music hall type place, uh, you know, that's very, very large. They used to do the, you know, the big dances with the big bands in this place. And um, you had to carry your equipment up to this, this little stage that wasn't, it was very high, I would say probably 20 feet or so, 25 feet up and carry your stuff up there. And, you know, we did our set and brought all our stuff down. The doors brought their stuff up and started performing and there was no gym you know on stage and the band just kept playing you know the beginning of the song break on through and suddenly from way in the back of this big place you know you hear him go and he comes you know walking across or stumbling across the, the floor and he climbs up up on the stage and we're all wondering what the hell you know he's he really is out of it and he starts to sing and then he stops and then he to do a cartwheel on the stage and he goes right off the stage straight down flat on his back on a concrete floor and we thought oh my god he's you know he's broken his back or himself you know but he was so out that he just popped up you know like a drunk in a car crash and turned around looked where he was went back got up on stage and just began the song and the rest of the set went perfectly like nothing had happened and i thought wow <laughs> that's that's one person that is, you know, in his own universe there. Um, and it was one of those things where I thought I've, I've never seen anybody else take a fall off stage and not really hurt themselves, but he managed to. That is incredible. And obviously they were on, you know, a, a, a band on the rise, so to speak, um, like you described so well. And thank you for sharing all of that. Uh, I mean, it just uh, amazes me that you – got to not only meet the, the the band members and Jim, but, you know, you actually can tell people, hey, I actually heard them sing live, which I just think is really yeah. phenomenal, um, you know, yeah. as time goes by, that, that you have those memories. I am curious, though, Tom, with your love for film, obviously you also love music, which is wonderful, but did you ever start to feel a little conflicted at any point that maybe the cinema is calling you back? That, that maybe you're spending too much time as a musician? Well, it, you were teenagers, so that was a period where you were doing kind of what you your peers were doing. And obviously, as I said before, you know, we wanted to have, you know, girls, you know, respond to us. I mean, that was the greatest thing for a bunch of guys to, you know, have, have screaming girls and, you know, uh, touching you know when on stage and you know going into the audience and you know doing all this stuff that i'm doing again now all these years later and it's you know incredible fun to you know to, to have that kind of energy but we did talk about making kind of our version of music videos at that point because you know i still had my camera and you know we attempted to shoot them to some things those were also the days when the monkeys you know were created and uh, we even auditioned for the monkeys at a certain point because they were looking you know, young guys that could play these, these characters. Oh, so, wow. you know, that had a huge influence, you know, the hard days night at the Beatles and, you know, trying to merge, you know, rock and roll and music together. 
was MTV, you know, that, that took off, you know, quite a few years later, became the big, you know, way of seeing, seeing songs, not just hearing them. But I didn't really have the, the, the film bug come back in until I went to Paris and was studying mime. And I was living across the street from a, a movie studio that changed movies three times a day. So if I wasn't studying, I was over there, you know, watching films and universe, you know, films from every part of, of international music, movie scene. So, you know, seeing, you know, not only French films, but Italian films, Russian films, and of course the American films. So that had a big influence on me wanting to get back into the film world. But again, there was too many place to put, you know, the silent comedy that I was doing that was obviously from the days of Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and stuff. But I decided that, you know, I formed my own production company called Cinemime, you know, which I want to combine a visual cinema, you know, with, uh, you know, the work that I did and make sure that a lot of the type of things that I was creating for film really were, you know, understood through what you saw, not necessarily you heard so that's been you know something that i've kind of held on to my whole life but there was that transition when i came back from um from paris and began you know working as a as a mime and as an actor that it started to you know get to me that i wanted to kind of paint on a bigger canvas you know which was you know needing a bigger group of people to you know to create what it is that you have in your head you know film wise and so the you know, transition kind of came there in the late 70s uh, when I finally made my first film in 1980. Well, I'll tell you what, Tom, I'm always intrigued by individuals such as yourself that has their hand in several cookie jars, so to speak. I mean, it's not necessarily uncommon, of course. I mean, lots of artistic people are interested in all sorts of areas of the industry, but there are some that only want to act. I'm sure you've met some, and that's great. Or there's some that they just want to write, and and that's great too. But I always find it interesting that people that, that like yourself, that are involved in so many areas of artistry um, – so I would like to ask you about pantomime because I've never spoken with an individual with your kind of experience with that. I mean, obviously, I can imagine what some of the challenges would be. But let me just ask you, what do you think is the greatest challenge to be a really good at it? And you mentioned Charlie Chaplin. I mean, talk about brilliance. I mean, anytime yeah. I watch any of his uh, old films, it's just it just amazes me uh, just how good he was. I'm uh, and I'm sure that he probably influenced you in some way or another in regards to pantomime. Yeah, um, very much. Uh, ironically, my father, uh, who was a, a soldier in World War II, uh, when they came marched into uh, Paris, you know, driving out the there was, you know, stuff all over the the streets and, you know, the soldiers were allowed to take anything that was, that was there because um, the place had been abandoned. So, you know, everybody was grabbing, you know, things that they thought were, would be valuable. And my dad saw a bunch of film that was, you know, reels of film and he, he rolled that up and, and brought that with him. And it turned out to be, you know, movies, short films. So when I was growing up on Sunday nights, you know, he'd put a bed sheet up on the wall and he would project these 16 millimeter films. So that had a huge influence that I didn't even realize was going to be part of my life years later. 
you know, watching, watching Chaplin, you know, perform. And then once I kind of realized from studying what his stuff was and how he did it, it led to me studying, you know, Buster Keaton, who actually used the camera in an even more way um, than, than Chaplin did uh, in terms of visual comedy and all these great, you know, silent film actors and comedians learned how to kind of a world where anybody, any age, any country could understand what they were doing because it was a universal language pantomime. It was a way of communicating that, you know, anybody understood. You did not have to read title cards and, you know, you didn't have to know that language. So that, you know, that really fascinated me to try to find um, material that I could, you know, do that was something that you could express, you know, in that in that visual way. And a lot of the great film you see all the time, you know, people don't realize it, that maybe the first 10 minutes of the film is without any words. You know, they set up a mood and an atmosphere and you set up a character that's the hero, um, you know, or the, the per- to be the, the victim of somebody, uh, you know, all these things are kind of really with sound, but they mainly the story is told visually. So each two, a uh, visual storytelling approach to material so that, you know, you really do create something that would work for any audience place. I always love it when a film uses music to, um, you know, reach out and grab the viewer. Um, it's not just window dressing, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. For example, somewhere in time, I can't even imagine the movie without the music. It's like the oh, yeah. music is half the experience for me. And um, yeah. j- and you described that so well. Thank you. I would like to ask you, uh, when you think back working with Woody Allen, um, what that overall experience was like for you. That was amazing because Woody was one of my heroes, you know, comic heroes at that time. And, and he had done, I don't know, three or four films that, I think um, that sounds about right. Anna's and uh, yeah, I can't remember what the other one was, but you know, I saw him live perform, and you know, just loved his comedy, and just thought he was amazing. So when I got this call that you know Woody Allen would like to meet you, I was you know flabbergasted. So I went in and uh, you know met him, just him and me in a room, and uh, he was saying that he wants to do this old type of comedy, not like the he's been doing, but really with a lot of slapstick and sight gags and stuff. And he has this sequence where there's these robots of the future that are being uh, dropped off at these different, you know, homes. And, you know, he wanted to have, you know, uh, uh, you know, the way that the actors would, would act robotically, he would do, but in a comic version of it. Um, so together we kind of worked on, you know, kind of the way that, I moved, you know, as a robot, and then he would find a way to do that, but different. So it's it's comic, more of a staccato kind of movement as opposed to the smooth movements that we were doing. And it was just amazing to be with a man that you idolized who kept saying, you know, I, I do that. I, I, I don't have that ability, you know. And then he would do something that would be hysterical. And I realized, you know, he was probably one of the most, you know, humble and, you know, impure people. And yet, you know, a genius at what he did, you know, it was like, he was constantly feeling like this is not going to, not going to work. And yet he would be pulling it off brilliantly. So 
it was amazing to, you know, to be with somebody that was, you know, complimenting you who looked at as like, you know, one of your time idols. And over the years, he's been so productive, you know, with almost, I think every year he comes out with another film. So it's like whatever, you know, you got to say about the guy artistically, he's amazing that he keeps just, you know, producing, you know, work. And that's not, not easy in an art form like film. Very true. High quality projects and, and results. And like you said, it's not easy to keep doing that over and over, especially at such a high level. And you know, Tom, uh, the one thing I like about um, Woody as an actor is, is he's got the, the nervous guy down to a T. Um, I, I, I just, um, it just cracks me up just how good he is in, in films where his character is all you know, anxious and nervous. He does that so well. Yeah, he sure does. Well, when it comes to the black hole, is there any um, story or occurrence in particular that comes to mind? Well, the black hole is interesting because I have a great love of Disney and the Disney Studios. And so when I was called in on that, it was basically I was like a movement coach or and kind of a, like a stunt coordinator for the robots and the humanoid um, characters that were in that and so I was brought in to kind of work with, you know, either uh, actors who had physical ability or, um, you know, dancers and stuff to, to kind of, you know, show them how to move in a kind of a slow, you know, zombie-like fashion for the humanoids. And then the robots, you know, there was that you know, kind of classic robot movement that was, you know, had to be uh, within these suits that they had constructed, which were very kind of limiting. There was only so much movement that you could do with those. And uh, the director, Gary Nelson, at one point said, you know, we would like to create, a, you know, a role thing um, because, you know, I, I just think it'd be great to have you, you know, do something that really shows your, you know, robot and ability. So they ended up creating this character, Captain Star, um, that they, they wrote into the script and, um, the whole sequence to myself, uh, with the little robots that were in there and, um, you know, like a shooting gallery where I was kind of this egotistical bot that gets beaten by the, the, you know, the smaller little robots. Um, and that, you know, was amazing years later, you know, to have so many people love that film because it wasn't a big hit at the time, but like many things, you know, it was discovered on, on video and, and on DVD and it's kind of become this, you know, kind of cult film when seen, you know, through the eyes of, you know, a, a young, younger generation. So I, it's, I, I'm always amazed when people go, Oh my God, you were captain star. And it's like, yeah, it was also the Jabberwocky and Alice in Wonderland, that mini series. And, you know, there were so many things that I did where I was completely not seen, but, you know, a part, John, Frank a movie called Prophecy, where they had like this mutated bear character in there that was the monster of the piece. And, um, you know, I had to learn how to run on all fours, you know, with about 150 pounds of hydraulics and rubber suit and that thing. So it was very physically taxing, but it was a great opportunity to be on a set and watch a director like John Frankenheimer work. Um, so that was another part of my sort of early filmmaking, uh, you know, lessons, you know, and, and, you know, watching the pros do what they do. 
I'm sure it was. And, and just think of all those incredible experiences you had uh, all those years ago, earlier on in your career. That, that's, just, um, that's just incredible. And if I bring up the gentleman who I admire uh, very much, Dick Van Dyke, uh, you oh, have yeah. a lot to say about uh, the gentleman and projects associated with him. Yeah. Yeah. I just saw Dick probably about, I don't know, six months ago or so at Mad Castle out here. And it was such a great reunion, uh, you know, a group called the LA Mind Company that Dick saw perform and he asked us to come on to his series. And then he knew that I wrote and directed the pieces. And he said, you know, would you write and direct things for me and the group to do? And then when we have guest stars on, you know, them as well. So it was such an honor. I mean, I was, I don't know, 26, 27 at the time, you know, to have somebody who, like Dick Van Dyke, who you would write a sketch for, and then you say, well, it goes like this, this, and this, and you'd sort of show it, and then he would imitate what you were doing, but then make it like 10 times better, you know, um, because of his incredible comedy, uh, you know, talent. And then only to be, you know, working not just with Dick, but with, you know, Carol Burnett and Sid Caesar and um, God, who else is in there? Chevy Chase and Flip Wilson and um, and then uh, Lucy, which was an incredible experience to actually tell Lucille Ball what to do. <laughs> you know, wow. I, you know I, I just could not believe it. Um, and got I got an Emmy nomination from that work on that show um, for for the writing comedy writing in that year. And you know, it, it was an amazing experience. And Dick was one of the humblest and most talented people still today that is, is just amazing at his age. He's still up there doing it. And, you know, for any of the listeners out there that seen the new Mary Poppins, um, to see Dick up there, seemed like crazy. And I don't know, he's 92. And I mean, just so full of life. And, um, he, he's such an amazing man, you know, thing to, to have a chance to be you know, with him and work with him. You must have read my mind because I was just about to bring up Mary Poppins Returns. I saw it uh, mm -hmm. in the theaters. I thought it was an incredible movie. I enjoyed it so much. Very visually, um, uh, just really, really well done. Visually incredible. Yeah. But like you said, when I watched his scenes, especially those <laughs> that, that scene when he's getting on the desk and he's he's tap dancing, you know, I you you really as a viewer, at least for me, I, I just forgot all about his age. He's just um, mm -hmm. such an appealing figure, you know, yeah. on the screen and I'm sure off as well. And I appreciate you sharing yeah. that. And wow, Lucille Ball and all those people you mentioned, that is just absolutely remarkable. Um, as you know, she was one of a kind. There's a few that we can say yeah. that are one of a kind. Well, I yeah. did want to ask you, Tom, did you happen, as the, as the 80s arrived finally, did you happen to view, uh, just out of curiosity, the first Friday the 13th film? I saw the very first one, yes, um, which I thought was really good. I mean, it was certainly derivative of Halloween, as most of the industry, when they saw the success that, you know, John Carpenter made a movie for $300,000, and, of course, it was making millions and millions uh, back. You know, it became, all right, we've got to find more of those movies. And uh, Sean Cunningham had gotten this notion about doing a, you know, thing at the, at a camp and then, you know, hired a writer, Victor Miller, and the two of them now are battling about that, you know, legally about who actually owns the rights, which is why there hasn't been a, 
Friday the 13th in about 10 years now, trying to figure out, you know, who actually owns the right and which studios still own the rights to it. But, um, you know, Sean's movie, you know, really had, you know, uh, a wonderful twist. Uh, and so that it wasn't who we thought it was, that, you know, it was Jay's mother that was doing this. And I didn't see any of the other ones after that. Um, I just, you know, I, I sort of was trying to create, you know, my kind of horror movies and the uh, slasher movies. There were so many. It just felt like, you know, everybody was just copying, you know, each other. And when I got offered this one um, to do, uh, and I had already done, I sort of was reluctant to take it. And my agent basically convinced me that, um, this would be a hard move career-wise. And I go, but I can't do one of these things seriously, not like the sixth one. So he said, well, figure out something, and which I did, which is like I said, I wanted to kind of make a satire of Friday or a slasher movie as I'm actually making one, you know, trying to put a sense of humor into it and add elements that had not been in any of those movies before um, with a, you know, kind of a stronger storyline of what Jason is, who's who he's after and having car chases and underwater fights. And then the big thing was actually bringing children into the camp. So that was a, you know, like, is he Jason going to actually kill kids? No, that can't happen. It didn't, but it added another, you know, layer to the suspense, but the sense of humor has, you know, really bode well all these years because a lot of people find it to be their favorite Friday. Um, each generation kind of, you know, looks at it as something that is fun, which was, again, kind of my objective in doing it is, you know, I don't want to make something that's just purely disgusting and, you know, you know, killing women for no good reason. You know, I wanted to have a sense of a roller coaster ride, you know, and kill as many guys as you kill girls and make it, you know, really about, you know, Jason being somebody that was happy being, but the ends up resident. And the rest of it is, you know, how are you going to stop this this unstoppable zombie now? Um, so that was a big turning point in the series, too, that Jason now is, you know, pretty much unstoppable you know, since he's no longer human. So the whole experience, you know, came came about with me having to watch all these and try to figure out, okay, they did this. Now I want to try to do something different. Um, so I kind of caught up with all the films in one sitting, you know, over at Paramount Studios just before I wrote mine. Well, you did an absolutely um, remarkable job. Uh, one of the things that I uh, liked about your approach to the film, Tom, was um, uh, the way that you filmed uh, your scenes was very, very appealing. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that the pace was, was really good, but not so fast that you couldn't, you know, uh, you know, have a connection to the characters. Um, so I thought that was also very well done. It had a great, uh, musical score, uh, in addition mm -hmm. to the Alice Cooper song, but, you know, just the whole score itself. Uh, lots of good energy. It was an adventure, like you're describing. Um, and mm -hmm. I was fascinated at that time that, wow, Jason is back, and, and how could this be? And it's rather ironic to think that um, basically he came back because um, the, the, the character that had done him in in part four, the final chapter, you know, basically just was uneasy that he was somehow going to come back, and he had to dig him up and, and get the proof himself that he was actually dead, but that certainly mm -hmm. did backfire. I'm just wondering, yeah. as you were writing this script – 
Was it uh, difficult for you to come up with, um, you know, how you're going to bring Jason back? Was that challenging for you or did the idea come to you rather quickly? That idea actually came pretty quick because um, Frank Mancuso Jr., who was the one that was the producer and was executive producer on, on all those far after the first one, um, you know, he said, look, you know, we're going to put this into production a year earlier than we normally do these things. And I, the one thing we realized is we screwed up on part five and that the fans hated that they watched this whole movie thinking it was Jason and it really wasn't, you know, it was a ambulance who was upset that his son, you know, had died. So because of that, you know, bad uh, reaction from the, you know, the, the Friday fans, you know, he said to me, look, I just want you to do one thing, bring Jason back, you know, however you got to do it, figure it out. And then I said, but I also wanted to have comedy in it. And he goes, that's fine. Just don't make fun of Jason. I said, no, still going to keep him the, you know, the Jason that we know and, you know, are afraid of. So because of my influence of the universal, you know, my mind, of course, immediately went to, you know, dead body, electricity, you know, and lightning. And now I had to figure out, okay, how could a, how could he possibly get electrified or, you know, get lightning on him? And then, then I kind of came up with this whole thing where Tommy kind of freaks out, actually seeing memories of what happened that night. And he pulls this, you know, bar off the fence that's sharp at the top and starts to, you know, jab him with this thing and then leaves it there um, and gets out. And then, of course, there's a storm, you know, that's approaching and it just so happens to, you know, connect with that that spear and that that's what brings him back. And, you know, as crazy as the idea is in, in the monster world, it sort of, you know, made sense, you know, because we remember historically with Frankenstein, you know, that was the way you brought a body to life. So that that came about, as I said, pretty, pretty quickly. But again, I needed the audience to know that I wasn't doing this seriously, that they're going to be with that this is going to be fun so that the when the opening uh, sequence was done and we went into the title, uh, you know, the titles. I did a kind of a James Bond parody with Jason going across this with this like this little circular eye thing like the Bond films do. And Bond would do, he slashed and, you know, causing this <laughs> slash of red blood and then down comes the title, Jason Lives. So, you know, people found, you know, we got incredibly good reviews for something that was never reviewed well, because basically it was like, well, you can't hate something in front of itself. And where I had a character actually break the fourth wall, look into the camera and say, why do they have to dig up Jason? Some folks have a strange idea of entertainment. And that really was another saving grace in, in, that they, that was always brought up that was, you know, that making fun of the crowd that was that making fun of us. And it's like, yeah, a little bit of both. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I've always loved that line. Um, some, you know, some folks have a strange idea of entertainment and done on, on me and my life and films about three years ago, I guess, uh, Joe Madri, you know, said, I want to use that as the title of book, you know, strange idea of entertainment conversations with Tom McLaughlin. And, uh, I, it's like I've become very identified with that one line now with the book out and, you know, and the fact that in the book, every, everything is kind of shared, including the actual treatment for Jason lives is in the back of that particular book for fans that want to see, you know, what I wrote initially 
greenlit, and then I wrote a script off of that particular treatment. Um, but it, yeah, it, it was a process of just really trying to find a way to keep the film entertaining and hopefully have the characters be likable so that you really didn't want to see them die, um, which I think is important as well, is that, uh, you know, there was some sense of caring, you know, for, for who, you're, who you're spending time with on the screen there. I agree. Um, uh, so many of the characters were very likable. And, um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I was really uh, cheering them on to survive somehow. And, and I think that added a lot of suspense, too, um, because you, you wanted some of them to make it. And you just weren't sure yeah. if it actually was going to happen. Just a, just a fantastic script, uh, Tom. Well done. And, you know, I can tell you as a, a kid growing up in the 80s, I, I thought it was a fantastic idea so even back then i thought it was a a a great idea and and then of course having jason back as basically uh undead or folks describe him as a zombie-like um individual at that point um more of a monster than ever um but boy the screen presence of jason is just something else with that character it can really give you chills I, I have yeah. to tell you, a, a, a scene, and you did uh, mention uh, the moment a few times, but this one of the scenes that made my mouth you know, just fall to the floor was the whole camper scene, because I just was not expecting that type of scene in, in, a, in a Friday the 13th movie. I thought it was really wild and edgy, and I just wanted to say to you that I just really enjoyed that moment in the film. Well, thank you. Yeah, that, that's that's a wonderful, you know, I've got a few things in there, you know, that you call set pieces, you know, certain sequences that kind of are all self-contained, you know, they have a setup um, and then, you know, obviously Jason gets involved and then there's, you know, the final kind of outcome of the confrontation and it kind of works as one little, one little piece and the, the Volkswagen scene with the, you know, the two camp counselors, you know, where, where Jason stops them in front of the road there and their, their, you know, uh, conflict with them and the death of both of them. And then going out on kind of a visual gag of, you know, the American Express card, you know, floating, you know, in the water from the, the girl that had offered him money and credit cards, not the killer. Um, you know, that kind of stands out as a separate thing. And the motorhome too, you know, set up with the place, the thing bouncing, Jason looking at it, tilting his head, like what the heck? And, you know, kind of goes in there and then a series of things Mm. that occur that, you know, that lead to that motorhome actually going airborne um, and and crashing down. And then this kind of iconic shot of Jason climbing out of it and standing on top of it like, you know, a a triumphant warrior standing on top of the beast that he killed. And that image, you know, has become kind of a famed image from the movie, too, because it, uh, you know, it, it really kind of shows this power of this unstoppable guy so you know that that's you know one of my favorite scenes in the movie too and and one of the more you know dangerous things to shoot um to get get it so that stunt driver could do this thing and nobody got hurt do you recall how many days or how long it took to actually film a scene like that that basically was, I guess it would be two days because um, we had one day where we did all the stuff, you know, inside the motorhome, and then another day where we did all the, you know, exterior stuff, you know, where they came out and walked around and found that the plug had been pulled, and um, and then of course the, you know, the actual crash of the motorhome was all basically over one, you know, 
long night. It was actually the last shot that we did in the whole movie was that that final shot of Jason standing on top of it. But that, you know, to prepare all that, to put all the cameras on it, you know, to make sure everything was safe, you know, that was, you know, many, many hours of, of one night, you know, to accomplish that. Well, I hope I pronounce this, uh, this gentleman's name correctly, but he was involved in that scene, and that is Tom Fridley. Um, yes. You know what's interesting to me, Tom, I just kind of wanted to throw this uh, in there, is that, you know, as I mentioned, having uh, grow, grown up in the 80s, you know, I think I knew a lot of guys like that character, <laughs> if, you wanna, if you know yeah. what I mean, you know, if the, with yeah. the hair and the headphones and, and the attitude, but still an appealing character. I mean, that, that's what I liked mm-hmm. about it. Instead of just making him a jerk, you know, he was still an appealing character. And, um, yeah. and I, I thought I the know. whole cast was r- appealing. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but they kind of have an interesting tie-in with another kind of iconic 80s show, uh, Welcome Back, Cotter. And uh, yes. Tom Fridley, if you look at his eyes, you know, there you'll see John Travolta because he's John Travolta's cousin. And so wow. there's uh, that connection. And then, of course, I, you know, hired Ron Palillo, who was Horshack, yes. actually, from the show. And that for a lot of people was a wonderful touch because, you know, he it was funny was. and, you know, it was a good, good, good character to, you know, to be there with Tommy in the beginning. So, uh, you know, we have that little kind of nod to, you know, an iconic show. Well done. And what was it like working with him uh, during the opening scenes? He was great. He was fun. He was funny. He was, you know, very professional. Um, can only say, you know, great things. I didn't get to work with him, you know, for a lot of days because it was just sure. that, you know, the stuff in the in the van and then the in the cemetery. But uh, you know, that 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 time was great, and it was uh, very sad. You know, we lost him. I guess about two years ago, uh, Ron passed away, and you know, it was like end of the first of the cast members, you know, that was gone, and you know, that sort of affected all of us because. Believe it or not, you know, this 32, 33 years it's been since we made that movie, we still remain friends. We still are, you know, obviously Facebook friends, but, you know, we go to these conventions and see each other and it's like, you know, old times. It's like we all went to college together or something, you know, that that experience, you know, that 28 day shooting all night, you know, down in Georgia kind of bonded us in a way, you know, that, you know, a lot of shows don't, you know, it can be a horrible experience. And for us, it was just a lot of fun and we really got to kind of love each other in the process. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, uh, working on a film, you described it perfectly. You you can become an artistic family. And I think that's one of the most rewarding aspects of filmmaking is that Mm -hmm. it's those, it's those long lasting relationships because Tom, I'm not sure if you're aware, I'm also an actor and a writer um, I have directed one play, so I have a long ways to go to catch up with you. I don't think you have to lose any sleep uh, at the moment, but um, I can understand those relationships. They, they, they certainly stay with you, don't they? They do. And it's, yeah, I mean, we're, we're a sensitive lot. I mean, there's, you know, there's no question that, you know, there's so much insecurity in what we do because it's, it's an art form and you don't know if it's working or not unless somebody tells you that or it's successful in some level but you have to keep going and you have to trust your instincts and your gut and you've got to put up with people saying you know that's a crazy dream why don't you become a doctor or a lawyer or something else and you know you obviously are always living on the edge of uh, financially especially when you're up and coming and it takes you know 
kind of a, a group around you where everybody's encouraging one another that, yeah, you can do it. And we're not competing with each other. We're, we're, we're a family. And I feel that too, with, uh, you know, uh, other up and coming artists working now with, you know, young students, um, just out of high school and into college and, you know, they have their dreams and what they want to do. And it's, it's wonderful to see them accomplish them. I, you know, I, I'd love when they graduate and they get a chance to make a film or work on a show or whatever. And you'd see them, you know, getting, getting what they started as, as a God, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if my parents really believe in me and then, you know, be successful. And then you got to try to keep it going, you know, which is, you know, also a big problem, you know, once you're, once you start to make it, you got to try to stay there and with all the competition coming up around you and Hollywood always looking for the next big thing. No doubt about it. And you have to stay true to your own heart. And sometimes it does take mm-hmm. a while to learn that lesson. But that is something that I've learned. And you described all the aspects so well. And one that I would also add is that, you know, like you mentioned, hey, why don't you just be a doctor or, or a lawyer or do a nine to five job? But sometimes artists, as you know, Tom, you know, they can often feel like no one understands them. Like they feel like they have talent and passion. Maybe family's not uh, so understanding or not. maybe even a lot of friends aren't. So for artists who do have a good support system, I think it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really does. And, um, you know, you, you, you want to feel that you're not, you know, not causing bad feelings within your family or friends or whatever. And because, you know, jealousies come up and, you know, concern. I mean, you know, when, when my kids started to, you know, go into this business, it was like, Oh God, you know, I loved when they were thinking more about being a veterinarian as my daughter was. And, you know, my son, you know, he, it didn't take him very long to first want to be, you know, a writer and then want to direct and things. And he's been working, you know, in production. Um, and it's, it's tough. I mean, he's been working on some great shows like, you know, Westworld and true detective and, you know, he did uh, one of the Batman movies and stuff, but he's, you know, working, you know, in the, you know, production um, assistant category, which, you know, it's a lot of work and long hours and stuff. And, it, you know, it's a way to keep keep going in the business while you're trying to get your scripts, you know, sold. Um, and, it, it, you know, I watch them go through all those horrible ups and downs because, you know, what, what happens with these things, it's like, you know, you can paint something when you finish painting it, you either stick it on your wall or you try to sell it. And, you know, if people don't see it, uh, okay, that one doesn't sell and you got to try another one. And that's the way with screenplays are. And then, you know, when you finally get the chance to do a movie or do a TV show, it ends at a certain point. Um, you know, not everything goes, you know, 22 seasons on TV, you know, or not every movie is really successful. Uh, lots of times for reasons that have nothing to do with you or the work that was in there. They just were released at the wrong time or the competition was so huge at the time that it wasn't noticed. But you then have to, you know, pull yourself up and try to find another one. And it's not like anything that's consistent. You know, you're you're up against such competition that it really does take somebody, you know, believing in you, um, besides just yourself, just to help open doors for you and just to be there, you know, to say, you know, don't give up, you know, it's, it's, if you're passionate and you love it, you know, people will eventually say yes. It's just lots of times takes a lot longer, 
you know, to have that yes than, than you expected or you wanted. So it, it, it is. A, I, I really, really admire the people that can stick it out and kind of take the pain, you know, that, that comes with, you know, the, the desire to have a dream and to accomplish something that everybody else is telling you that's impossible. And I always, anytime somebody said no to me or said that's impossible, in my mind, I went, yeah, watch this. And, you know, it was just that little amount of, I'm not going to listen to the bad. I'm only going to, you know, listen to my heart that says, do it, do it. And that was those two words, do it, was something that Frank Capra said to me when he kind of became a mentor of mine. And and the few times that I spoke with him and stuff, anytime I started to complain, he would go, Tom, Tom, just do it, do it, just do it. Don't talk about it, just do it, you know, and that really, you know, long before the Nike ad, you know, he was saying this, <laughs> and it really was that kind of inspiration that you kind of needed, you know, and coming from somebody that made some of the greatest movies ever and did so much for film as a way to share the best part of humanity, you know, that his, his words meant a lot. Wonderful insight and perspective. Uh, thank you so much, Tom. I was really moved and touched by what you just said. I totally agree with all that you said, and um, I won't go into details now, but I can tell you that I'm a person who at one point almost gave up on artistic projects. So what you just said really means a lot to me personally, but I also know to so many others out there listening, and I hope that that yeah. will be very inspirational for them. So thank you so much. And I wanted yeah. to ask you, I had heard that the characters that were the paintballers were originally intended to be hunters. So we have mm -hmm. uh, the couple businessmen, I guess you could say the nerd, for lack of a better phrase. You had the mm -hmm. macho guy, and then you had the woman, mm -hmm. which I thought was great that she was actually winning. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I thought that was a nice twist. But um, is that true, that they were intended to be hunters? Yeah, if you, um, you know, if you get the book uh, on me, The Strange Idea of Entertainment, uh, and, and you read the treatment in the back, yeah, you'll see the whole sequence Originally, my first instincts were is that, you know, what else would be in the forest out there that Jason could come in contact with? And I wanted to do a daytime scene. And one of the things that I wasn't able to do or find was I wanted to find a forest that had there was a forest fire so that Jason would be walking through all these burnt trees and burnt ground and things. And we, you know, we just could not find any place close like where we were shooting. So I had to give up that. But then the thing that's in the treatment is that, yeah, Jason, these guys hunting, and basically it's the same thing, but without, you know, the comic aspect of, you know, the paintball thing that I ended up putting in there. But he, when he kills the macho guy, um, this guy's got this utility belt with all these different weapons on it. And he also had an Uzi strapped around him um, because, you know, they go, why, you're not going to hunt with that and he goes well just in case you know and then he was a really you know like so kind of character so after jason kills him the next time you see jason he's got this utility belt and he's got an uzi strapped around him and that had not been done before and i thought well maybe you know this could be interesting so the whole motorhome scene wasn't the way it was where he grabs the girl and presses her face in or puts the knife into cork it was like she he came out of that bathroom and he just opened fired and, you know, blasted these two. And then the motorhome crashed. 
But as soon as I started to go to the script aspect of it, I went, you know what? This is just wrong. Jason should not have a gun. We should not make this easy like this. It's a, you know, I made him sort of superhuman and there's nothing super, superhuman about pulling the trigger of a gun, you know? So I took that whole thing out and then, you know, changed it because I started hearing about these paintball things. And I thought, well, that's something that you do out in the forest and have some comic relief here, you know, with these characters. So it was, you know, kind of a blessing that I went away from the original concept and, you know, went to something that hopefully, you know, was much more fun and, uh, you know, and with a little more slapstick to it. Well, that's very interesting. You wanted to try new things as a director and screenwriter and add Mm -hmm. humorous elements, but you realized at that moment, you know what, this is probably not the best idea. And you gave the perfect reasons why. Uh, I could see where that might be tempting. You know, if um, someone had brought that idea up to me years ago in advance, I might have gone, you know, it's worth considering. But I think I probably would have had the same reaction as you, Tom, because I think you're right. It takes a little bit something away from the character. And um, I have to tell you, I really like the shot where he walks up behind him and as he's driving the uh, camper. It just uh, mm-hmm. really gives you chills. And, and the, the poor girl, yeah. boy, she really got her face smashed in. And yeah. the reason I'm bringing these, uh, those moments up is the one thing about the Friday 13th films is that most of the killing scenes, um, you know, many of them are intense and some are short and quick. It just depends. But they're rather uh, unique. Like, and you did the same thing. Uh, they all had their own uniqueness about how they were done in by Jason. And, and when you wrote the script, did you think about that in your mind? Like, okay, I need to make this kill, you know, this way. And then the other one totally different. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. That was a huge thing. And I also had, you know, I, 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 even though people go, how can you have morals and make a slasher movie? It's like, well, I actually am very moral about a, a lot of things. And I did not want to do these things unless I could say to the audience, we're having fun with this. And, you know, this is bigger than life. You know, you can't through somebody and, you know, have their heart come out the other side. You know, you can't twist the head all the way around and pull it off. You know, you have to super strong. So all of these things are push a girl's face all the way through. I mean, it's completely illogical, but in movie logic and particularly in the horror logic of a Jason and, and the fact he was brought back with lightning, it's like, okay, you know, all those rules kind of go out the window. But as I said there, I wanted to make sure that there was, it wasn't just going after females. It was going after anybody that was in his way. And his objective to that whole movie is to get this Tommy Jarvis character who brought him back from the grave because he was happy to be down there and peaceful and quiet. And now this kid brings him back and, you know, he's, he's on his way to get this kid and anybody that, as I said, gets in this path, you know, uh, is, is taken out. So it had that aspect to it that I, I, I tried to have the kills really be unique. Um, you know, when he, when he kills the three uh, paintballers at the same time, you know, it's like a triple decapitation. Again, completely impossible. But for an audience, it's they're fun because it is so over the top. And that's, a, you know, a major you know, rule that I kind of maintained through the film. And I remember as I was listening to you, thinking about that uh, great scene where the sheriff is confronting Jason, he finally realizes that Tommy was actually telling the truth. 
And I remember how he was kind of getting him at first. And I, it's, it's interesting as a viewer how you're like, okay, you know, I, I'm actually hoping this sheriff, despite everything, somehow makes it out of this film. But uh, that was not the case. But he did have a, a rather heroic confrontation. I did want to ask you what it was like directing that gentleman because, you know, he really gave a great performance. Uh, and um, I thought he brought a lot to the film. Yeah, he did. He's, uh, you know, he, he really was, um, you know, like an acting teacher as well. So he knows quite a bit about, you know, uh, David Kagan is his name. Uh, he really knows a lot about the acting craft. And, you know, he, he approached it, you know, in a very serious and logical way. I mean, to his, to him and that character, you know, Jason was this, you know, killing myth on one hand, but then probably there was somebody that was, a bit psycho and there was no supernatural aspect to him. So it was very easy to dismiss anything that Tommy was saying. And, you know, and he knows Tommy was in a mental institution for a period. And so again, you know, questioned his, you know, his, his logic and, you know, and his mind. So, you know, the, the worst thing for him was this kid was trying to, you know, get his daughter involved with this whole thing. And that really bugged him too, as especially as a single dad. So he had a lot of things as an actor to kind of play off of, um, and making that, you know, that thing of when he finally does confront Jason of like, like, oh my God, this is real. And then how many times he shot him, you know, he, he came right back again. So one choice, run. And obviously, once he finally, you know, captures him and attacks him because he thinks he's going to go. Jason's going to go after his dad. You know, I did, you know, the kill that I thought was the most, you know, unique in that there's no blood in it, you know, bending somebody all the way backwards. But when we had the screenings with the motion picture rating board, we went through nine screenings because they kept giving us X for, you know, the movie was just too intense. So we kept cutting back and cutting back. And I, I thought I was fairly, you know, tame with a lot of the things I was doing compared to some of the other ones. But they, you know, they just were kind of upset with the whole world of these these kinds of movies. So they really target us. Um, but the one that they kept objecting to was that backbend thing. And it's like what? And finally found out it, to them it was the cumulative effect. That by the time we get to that one, it was like okay, enough already. So they made us cut a lot of frames out of that. So it actually lasted a little longer than you know what you see on the screen. But it's still effective and the sound effect of the crack, you know, always gets gets the audiences. And sometimes, you know, it really is about what you don't see, you know, that's most effective, you know, that's not as bloody and gory as uh, certain kills are. And it kind of sticks with people, you know, in a way that, oh, God, I could see how that would be the most painful thing being bent backwards like that. So it's, uh, but again, completely bigger than life. Absolutely. And that was part of the fun uh, which seems kind of ironic to say because we're discussing a lot of people being done in by, you know, uh, Jason. But there is a, a sense of adventure, perhaps I'm trying to say, for people that like the franchise, like myself. And, um, mm -hmm. and I think that that was that, and I was always fascinated by the character of Jason. And, and, um, I always kept imagining myself in the care, you know, putting myself, in the shoes of the characters trying to survive, so to speak. Like, what would I do? And I, I always was intrigued by that. And thank you for mentioning the gentleman's name, David Kagan. 
Um, yeah. And and I think the relationship with the daughter brought that little that little bit of that soft edge that w- that was um, that propelled the character in many ways. Um, mm-hmm. I, I did want to ask you because you are the perfect person to ask Tom. Um, other than a handful of other people. So it's one thing to direct an actor, but directing a character like Jason Voorhees, when you approach that as a director, does it require more instruction on your part than normal? Or do you just kind of say, look, this is what I'm looking for. This is what you've got to do. Well, um, that's a great question Um, because we actually had um, uh, an actor, a stuntman actor, playing Jason when we first started production, a guy named Dan Bradley. And Dan was, you know, wonderful. And he, if you watch closely, if you look at like the paintball scenes, that's not the Jason that you see through the rest of the movie. All the daytime stuff was actually done with this um, stuntman, Dan Bradley. And he's much fuller figured than the actual Jason that was played by C.J. Graham. And, you know, they I got a note from the studio that they were concerned about, you know, that he was gaining weight, you know, in the process of shooting. And they, they were concerned that he wasn't going to look right, you know, as, as if this kept going. And I said, well, don't worry, I'll talk to him. But before I even got to there, Paramount made this decision that they want somebody else. And they just literally you know, fired him and gave the role to C.J. Graham. And I was, you know, beside myself because I really loved Dan and I thought it was awful to have that done to him and I never got a chance even to say goodbye to him. It was all done so quickly over a weekend. Um, But Dan has been enormously successful. You know, he's a, you know, a famous second unit director. He's done all the Bourne identity movies and the James Bond movies, all those big stunts and car crashes and all that stuff all came from Dan. So, I mean, he's, you know, the Jason thing was a little small, you know, blip in his, in his career that I'm sure, you know, he doesn't mind not him, you know, finishing that movie. But when CJ came on, he had no experience other than he was in the Marine and he had a great physique. So we talked about, you know, with him to be less lumbering like Dan was and much more almost like Terminator, you know, he moved almost in a slightly, you know, uh, mechanical way, not like a robot, but all his moves are very precise and very much, you know, like he was a force that had been electrified. And so, you know, being a soldier, you know, he always, anytime I gave him a direction, it was always, yes, sir. Yes, sir. (laughs) So he approached it just like being, you know, like, you know, being told what to do. And he just accomplished things in a way that was just natural to him, which made it, you know, really, really great. And so his, you know, the pace of his walk, his stature, you know, the way he, um, you know, came at, at people, the way he was like, you know, he really approached it as being like an unstoppable force. So it didn't require a whole of directing, you know, every, every time we did a scene, it was just kind of the overall you know, what to do and, you know, and keep it a little this way or, you know, snap your head around even a little faster, you know, so it's, it's much stronger, you know, or turn your whole body around, you know, and like a, almost like you got shocked, you know, so there's, you know, a little, little directing on that part, but, you know, most of it really was, you know, what he kind of brought to the role. And when you uh, directed this film, 
did the studio give you a lot of leeway as far as art- artistic creativity or did they have a lot of, look, we, we don't want too much of this. We want more of this. Um, I mean, h- how did you feel about that experience? It really was probably of all the, you know, 42 films I've done, I probably had the most creative freedom on that movie. Um, and for a couple of reasons, you know, one, they trusted me, you know, based on what the treatment was, they felt that, you know, the genre um, or the franchise is in a really bad state and somebody has got to come in and do something unique with it. And what I was turning in to them was, was special, was unique. And, um, you know, Frank Mancuso later on some interviews just said, yeah, I mean, with Tom, he, you know, he kind of knew what he wanted and it, it, you know, we, we loved it. So they, yeah, there was like little to no, you know, intervention as we were shooting it. Um, they, they basically were just very, um, you know, complimentary. And I had a production manager who, you know, kept trying to, you know, cut the budget down. You know, if I wanted a crane shot or things like that, they weren't there on the day they were supposed to be there. And you'd go, yeah, well, sorry, it got hung up in, you know, up in Atlanta and didn't get down here in time, you know, but found mm-hmm. out later that he was getting a bonus by, you know, bringing the film in under budget, which he did. Mm-hmm. So I the see. only time I actually got anything, you know, where I, I had to kind of break the vision that I had was uh, after I put the film together and we had a screening at Paramount, which was the wildest thing I've ever attended in my life because, the you know, they brought in a crowd that were hardcore Friday the 13th fans who had been standing out in the sun for, I don't know how many hours to come to this special screening at Paramount. And, you know, they were either drunk or stoned or whatever. And so once the movie started, they started to scream and talk and, you know, I couldn't hear the dialogue. I couldn't hear, you know, anything going on. And it was just a wild reception. And afterwards, I said to Frank, I, I said, I can't, did it work? Did it not work? Or, you know, he goes, oh, God, yeah, it worked great. But we need three more kills. I said, what do you mean? I, I, I did 13. I did 13 kills on purpose so I could keep it 13. He goes, no, I just feel from where the audience is, we need to get three more kills in there. And I go, well, but I thought you were out of money. He goes, oh, no, no, no. They, they, Don saved money on the show by, you know, what he did. <laughs> So we ended up, you know, shooting the death of the caretaker, the cemetery, you know, caretaker, because he didn't die in my initial version. And the, also the, um, the two kids that are out uh, in the forest when the, cemetery, when the caretaker gets killed, who are out kind of having a uh, proposal out at night, you know, um, you know, kind of a little romantic interlude. And it's the one thing that was actually shot in Los Angeles, and we did it all in one night. And it basically was, you know, fulfilling what the, you know, producer wanted in terms of, you know, these two additional, you know, or three additional kills in the movie. So that was the, that was the only time it was like different from what I initially envisioned. And so it's hard to complain because they had been so supportive of everything else that I, okay, let's, let's do it. Sure. Absolutely. And that poor caretaker, I think he called the, um, the, the, the bottle that he was drinking, um, I could be wrong, Elaine. And I, I remember him saying, Oh, you let me down. And, uh, cause he, he ran out of, of, of his drink. And, um, I, I'll tell you what, uh, just really colorful characters. So well done on that, Tom. Uh, 
And I'm just wondering, uh, before I ask you a question about post-production that I've thought of, I've not heard you uh, discuss before the main character, I guess, other than Jason, which would be the actor that portrayed Tommy, uh, Tom Matthews, because obviously that's a very important character, considering mm-hmm. the tie-in to part four when he was younger. And you even have a shot where you hear that scene. Uh, I liked how you uh, just had the uh, audio part of that. It kind of added, really added to the atmosphere. And, and of course, the character very traumatized, which is very understandable. Um, I, I think I identified with his way of thinking, like, you know, my goodness, he was so hard to kill originally. And um, yeah. what was it like working with him? Tom was amazing and continues to be, you know, a close friend and, and you know, uh, and we really have a great, great friendship after all these years. And, you know, there's certain people, you know, you just kind of bond with and he's just a solid, good guy. So he, you know, he, the John Shepard who played the Tommy character in part um, five did not want to do the role or he wanted too much money for some reason. I know I was told, you well, we can't use that actor again on this thing. And so you have to find somebody else. And, you know, we, we saw a lot of actors and Tom just to me perfectly embodied what I thought the Tommy character, you know, needed to be. And, yes. um, and he, you know, he had all the right, you know, I was doing a lot of, you know, what I call 1930s, 40s dialogue, you know, kind of smart ass, quick little quips back and forth. And uh, Jennifer Cook, you know, who, who was yes. playing Megan, he was excellent at that too. You know, I, I you know, yes. I, she doesn't know anything about Barbara Stanwyck or some of those, you know, incredible characters from those movies back in the 40s, the actresses that were able to do that. But she nailed that and the two of them back and forth were, you know, were just, great and really had a lot to do with why you love the movie because you want to see these guys succeed uh but tom yeah he he just you know every part i mean every scene and just you know made the part very very real and you know for a lot of people he's you know kind of the definitive you know uh adversary to jason um and uh he's continuing to like do these little fan fan films that are being made but that he's in and I'm actually doing one myself uh, that I'm part of and because the the love of this monster this Jason Voorhees character has just gone beyond you know wanting to see the next movie it's like okay if you're not so there's so many if you go on the internet so many small little Jason movies done by the fans you know, all over the world, you know, doing them and, uh, you know, playing the different characters and these, these ones that actually bring Tommy back as, as the, you know, Tom, Tom Matthews back as Tommy Jarvis, you know, is, is amazing. And just, you know, the game, uh, Friday the 13th, the game also, they, they created the, you know, off of Tom Matthews look and voice and using his actual voice is in that game too. So it's, it's like, he's, he's really taken this far beyond what the normal, you know, actor is in a movie. You know, he's become quite iconic. Yes. Um, Tom and Jennifer both did a great job. They had great chemistry, too. Of course, yeah. I mean, she's quite the beauty. Uh, I remember back in the day going, oh, wow, I'm, I'm enjoying this. And uh, But but Tom brought a sense of um, emotion to the role. 
and um, and very appealing, and, uh, like the hero of the film, um, no doubt about it. Well, before I get to that post-production question, I, I can't overlook the ending, the, the dramatic ending. I mean, really, really well done, Tom. Um, you know, the last shot with the eye opening. Okay, on the one hand, folks may say, oh, well, that's not necessarily surprising, right? But on the other hand, I found it very interesting because I'm wondering, was that your idea or did the studio say you have to do something to leave the door open for part seven? No, it was it was my idea. And, uh, you know, they, they uh, um, then, you know, very much wanted that. In fact, so much so that another thing that was in the original treatment was Jason's father. So, um, you know, there was a scene that was going to be before that of Jason's, uh, because Martin, the character that was the character, hadn't died. So there was a scene with um, him and and Jason's father, you know, his father looking down at the two graves of, uh, you know, his wife and, um, and Jason. And, you know, Martin, you know, says, oh, yeah, I took care of everything and stuff but you could see in jason's father's eyes that he sensed you know that's not his son in there you know because it's actually the you know the haas character that's down there so i wanted to just sort of introduce him as another element and then cut to the lake and stuff and see that you know jason opens his eye and you don't know if it's like he's communicating with his father or the fact that they you know megan didn't kill him but it was you know something that was uh another added thing but before we it even got into script um frank said to me i don't think we want to introduce his this particular thing because we need to let the fans know that jason is gonna the next one it's not going to spin off and be about jason's father so as much as i love the idea i just don't think it's the best way to kind of you know wrap up the end of the of the film so you know that was was taken out um uh, of the of the treatment, you know, so it never even went into. But well, you know, book. Tom, uh, you mentioned your great opening uh, segment where you know Jason throws the knife at the screen in a wink to the James Bond films, which I'm a huge James Bond film. So I loved that moment. I knew instantly what you were trying to do there. Great idea. But I was also thinking as I'm listening to you that, you know, isn't it kind of interesting, Tom, that uh, at the end of James Bond films, you often see James Bond will return. Wouldn't it have been something to, because the Friday the 13th films, they, they just kept going and going. It makes me wonder if they should have put in at the end, Jason Voorhees will return. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, that could have been a wink to the Bond films as well. That's true. That's true. I didn't think about that. But yeah, I mean, I just, as I said, with my pantomime background, I'm always trying to just do things visually. And, yes. um, you know, he's he's down there. He's down there, according to Tommy's belief in the mythology that, you know, dead people have to be put back into where they're, you know, where they're supposed to, you know, in this case, you know, that's where, you know, the boy supposedly drowned. And so that all kind of made sense in that mythical thing. But at the same time, you can't kill something that's already dead. And, you know, it's been brought back through these sort of supernatural powers so that it didn't take much to get the audience to believe that, okay, yeah, you may got his neck chopped at this blade, but it did not kill him. And, you know, I get out of there at some point, you know, and continue, which it did for, what, six more 
sequels, five more sequels. It, it sure did. It sure did. And I was thinking about another moment during that uh, ending was when he was on fire, Jason. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering, as a filmmaker, um, uh, when I think about that moment, I mean, it looks, um, I assume that was a stuntman, of course, but uh, it looks like a rather dicey uh, s- uh, scene to film. Um, actually, that I, that wasn't. It was, that was uh, CJ that was doing that, that they put like rubber oh, cement wow. on, on the back of his costume and put fair protective material there. And, um, you know, he, he did the stunt. Um, it was a stunt man that was playing Tommy that he jumped because he was jumping on top of him and then I the see. boat was breaking. So, you know, we, we did that, but yes, you know, see brave at doing most of those things himself. Um, if not all of them, I think, I think of it, I think he did it. That takes a lot of courage to, uh, that, that was a great shot by the way. And just, just an outstanding job on your part. And I was just wondering, uh, Tom, at the conclusion of filmmaking, I mean, the editing process, you've worked so hard on a film. Were you involved with the editing? Or, I mean, um, I mean, are, are, are you there sitting with the editor? Uh, because I would yeah. imagine that would be very hard to leave your mind after all that work, how it's going to be yeah. edited. Yeah, I've, I, I'm really obsessive. I mean, because the artist side of me, you know, has and wants to see it come through and editing and all the stuff in post is literally you basically writing the script again based on what it is that you have shot you know certain things come out a different way and you know certain things that you thought you could you know hold on longer want to make those shorter or certain things that you know you know, just would play very quick you know you find a way in editing to, to make more suspense drag it out longer than what was originally intended and it literally is like writing music you know um you you come in approach all these different cuts and and sound effects and stuff as you you would if you were writing a piece of music with an orchestra you know and we need a little more sound here we need less sound here we need a bigger sound for this you know the music has got to come into that as well and kind of not get in the way of the sound but the cutting, you know, the rhythms that you establish are crucial. And I had basically two editors on this. Uh, the screen was the guy that really did, you know, most of putting the film together. And then he had to leave for another film, um, you know, once we basically had the cut and stuff together. And then in came another editor, Charles Bornstein. Um, and then we kind of refined the film and dealt with all the, you know, more ratings board you know, cuts and things and tried to keep the film, you know, on, on track from what, you know, I wanted, but I, I don't leave the editing room and I'm in there for, you know, uh, very close with the composer and he, you know, loved doing the score because he could make it, you know, much more, um, gothic and have the, um, you know, almost spiritual aspect to the music underneath all the usual, you know, uh, hits and craziness that Terry does for those movies. So he, he really enjoyed that challenge and making, you know, something different. And so, you know, that was the question of making sure all the music cues and stuff worked in coordination with the sound. And so you got the best of both. Um, but yeah, I've, every film I've done, you know, uh, you know, the editor puts everything together and then I go in and either take it all apart or go, that's great. And that, or that's even better than what I, thinking so I, I like to give them 
you know, enough creative freedom in the beginning to put things together in the way their sensibilities are. And then it's a collaboration. You know, we go back and forth, you know, let's try this. No, that doesn't work. Let's try this. Okay. And, you know, in those days we're cutting on film. So if you took some part, you had to put all the pieces back together again. Now it's so much easier because you can have, have it and save that particular digitally and then start working on another and then another cut, you know, you can do as many as you want. So at some point you go, you know, I think we've just messed this whole thing to what it was originally. Let's look at that again and see maybe there's a better way to fix this. So it's so much easier than it was in those days, uh, you know, putting those pieces together. But um, it still was, you know, collaboration and, you know, with everybody on these things, you know, I, you know, you don't do it alone. You really have people that, that understand, you know, what it is you're and um, and working, you know, with you, you know, in a very positive way. And how did Alice Cooper's contribution come along? Was that um, something that was just uh, added at the end, so to speak, or did you find out at some point that um, you know the song that was used in the film would be included? A great song, by the way. I really, it's played at the end of the film, of course, and I just fits the film so perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's, again, it's kind of an interesting thing is that, you know, we, you know, we put rock songs in there that um, didn't really have anything to do with something that we could actually get. But there were things that I loved, you know, being a rock and roll person. And one of them, you know, just happened to be an Alice Cooper song that we we put into there that felt right. And then later, uh, Frank Mancuso came to me and he said, you know, we're trying to work out a thing with Alice Cooper because, you know, he loves the Friday stuff and would love to be part of this. And I was like ecstatic. And I said, you know, I, I knew him as Vincent in a group called the Naz that we used to, you know, actually played on the same bill, you know, back in the 60s. So this would be a terrific thing to actually have him, you know, be involved with the movie. But I, to this day, I still have not met Alice face to face after all these years and all the conventions and everything, I know the only time we actually, you know, spoke to each other were back in the sixties when, you know, we were two young struggling musicians. So, you know, he came in and, um, you know, they did the music video and the first pass of the song was a little more kind of heavy metal, hard rock. And then there was the decision that they wanted to make it a little more eighties feeling and in came the synthesizer thing and a kind of a different beat to it. Um, and then, you know, we got, you know, teenage Frankenstein and hard, hard rock summer also from, from Alice. So that, you know, we really kind of kept that consistency of, of Alice's music, you know, in, in the film. And it's, it's been something that I've always loved about the movie that has that kind of rock and roll, you know, loyalty in there to, to somebody that was a you know great and still is a great rock and roller. Oh, no question about it. Great song. It tied in so well with the atmosphere that you created as a filmmaker. Uh, very much so. I remember the first time I heard it, I thought, wow, this is just perfect. Perfect. Um, I'm a guy that really loves movie songs, Tom, especially if it's the mm -hmm. right fit. I just think it brings yeah. so much to to your imagination as a viewer. So I, I really like that decision. Well, I just have two more questions for you before I ask you about life today. If there's any current projects you'd like to discuss. And one is this. Were you ever asked to return to direct another of the Friday the 13th films? Yes, I was actually asked immediately after, you know, when this thing um, 
obviously was getting kind of the response that it got. And I said, you know, well, quite honestly, I don't know what I would do to make the next one unique. Let me think about that, you know. And then I came back, you know, uh, no, they, they came back to me, uh, Frank did. And he goes, would you be interested in doing a Jason and Freddy Krueger movie? And I went, well, wait a minute, how could that be? Because, you know, connected to New Line Cinema, and obviously Jason is paramount. And he said, well, I, you know, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to see if we can actually do a collaboration, you know, get them to give the rights and, you know, um, and obviously be part of the, of the financial, you know, benefits of, of putting these two things together. And for whatever reason, he couldn't make that deal work. So he goes, nah, so I guess we're not going to have Freddie and Jason, you know, in the same movie. And I said, well, I got a new idea. I said, you guys, Paramount has the rights and, you know, relationship with Cheech and Chong. And he goes, yeah, why? And I said, what about Cheech and Chong meet Jason? I mean, you know, that they're, you know, that maybe they're camp counselors themselves have been put in this job, or maybe they, you know, were, are, you know, out there camping. And it's, you know, I said it would be, a, a, you know, like Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. It would be, you know, part of Cheech and Chong movie and then also a Jason movie. And he laughed. He said, that's wild idea, but I don't think that the audiences, I mean, if they came to see Cheech and Chong, they might not like, you know, all the Jason you know, kind of stuff. And if it's a Jason movie, they might not like having the Cheech and Chong thing. And I go, I don't know. I think it's the same audience. He goes, oh, I don't think so. So that idea didn't happen. So then it was, you know, I basically said, well, you know, let me know if you come up with something else. Cause I, I just don't have anything. So it's taken 30, whatever it's been 31, 32 years. Now um, I finally have come up with a, a new Friday the 13th that, that, kind of picks up like 13 years after, you know, the one that I did and, uh, well, that sounds it. very exciting. It's, uh, it, I think, you know, from the, the couple people that I've had, you know, read it, they are very excited by it. And, you know, we do have this big problem with the, the rights and, uh, yes. who can do it, who, who's got, you know, the, the finances to either buy these two guys, you know, out with it and say, well, you know, we're just going to do this as an exception. Um, you know, if you can continue to do your lawsuit, but can this work? And I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but I felt artistically compelled to go, all right, this excites me. I want to see this movie. And it's, a lot of it is stuff that has never been done, you know, in a Friday yet. And yet I'm not going off, like taking Jason to hell or taking Jason up into the, you know, in the outer space. And some of the other ones did, it really kind of stays true to him, the lake, you know, people at a camp, you know, in, in this case, a retreat and, and, uh, it's, you know, set, I'm not going to say too much about it, but you know, you know, you know, it's set in a, in that same area, but in a different circumstance, so, you know, there's a lot of surprises if you're a fan. And I think if you've never even seen a Friday before, it would still work, you know, as a horror movie. But I've placed a lot of little comic nods to the, the, the past one. And, um, and these characters in this particular movie have no idea that there was a Jason Voorhees. And so there's a much more innocence to the whole thing uh, than there was like in mine where it was coming up as kind of a joke, you know, or saying, no, he, he was here, but he's dead. You know, here I'm, I'm playing it much more you know, innocently, 
but you know, I'll, you know, we'll see, we'll see if I get this thing made or somebody else gets another one made, you know, before me, it's, it's a very, very questionable thing, but I, I felt compelled to do it because I felt strong enough about, you know, what I finally came up with after all these years. So that's, that's the one thing I kind of have out there at the moment. Well, thank you for sharing that, Tom. And as I was listening to your description, um, I'm just so excited because I, I'm visualizing everything that you mentioned in my mind, and it just sounds so fantastic. Um, it really does, um, because you obviously have the skills to do all that you just described. And um, I, 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 I would certainly hope that there will be an opportunity for that to happen one day. And if it doesn't, it would be a, a darn shame, in my opinion. And, and let's hope this situation gets resolved one way or another, because when you think about it, Tom, it's really hurting the, the franchise in many ways. And, uh, you know, people would like to see more of possibly sequels or ideas like you have. And let's hope uh, that maybe would happen one day. And I appreciate you sharing that. Well, you answered my second question, which was just your insight into the franchise in general at, at this point in time. And I want to thank you for sharing so many memories and moments from filming Jason Lives. Thank you. Well, life today, what's going on with you uh, these days as a filmmaker? Well, besides, you know, finishing that script and, you know, and, you know, soon to release it and also working with a graphic artist to, you know, show how I'm going to show Jason and mine, because there's some things that are going to be visually a little different. Um, so that's, you know, that's one thing I've obviously been dealing with. Then, of course, the band, you know, is, you know, yes. rehearsing, re- recording new songs. Uh, we just came back from South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, where we did, you know, four performances down there, uh, which was, you know, a lot of fun. And, you know, there's some stuff, you know, you can see of that on YouTube. Um, but, yeah, that that still kind of continues on um, doing the band. Where, where that's going to go, we have no idea. I mean, we just kind of keep going, you know, and, and, and wait. To well, see. you guys seem more yeah. popular today than even years ago. <laughs> oh yeah. By, but yeah, by a long shot, it's, it's, you know, we go back to South by Southwest. It's the fifth year that they've asked us back. So a lot of people just kind of, you know, know and look forward to it. And I had an incredible situation where, you know, I go out into the audience when I'm singing and, you know, literally, you know, get one-on-one with, with the girls or, you know, buddy, buddy with the guys and, you know, kind of get the whole group either singing along with me or or dancing or whatever, you know, do a lot of physical things that I'm amazed that, you know, I get away with, you know, (laughs) in this day and age. But the fact that I think I'm an older rocker and I kind of create this vibe of this is just fun. You know, the, the, you know, the females just go along with that. And some of these girls that are dancing and flirting and kissing me or doing whatever, I mean, could be my own kids you know, or I could be their grandfather in terms of age. But, you know, it, there's a magic that kind of happens with, I'm just, you know, a rocker and they're, and they're just enjoying the fact that this is like the magic of having somebody step off stage and kind of come into their world and be part of, you know, the show. So and I, I always end up thanking, you know, them afterwards, you know, for, you know, being part of the show because it, you know, people love that. And, you know, there's that whole thing. Oh God, I'm glad it's not happening to me or God, I wish you would come over to me and do that. So, you know, that's been really fun. On this last show, I was, you know, out there and suddenly I was lifted up out of nowhere. I suddenly found myself like up above the crowd and some guy literally 
put his head between my legs and lifted me straight up. And it, I didn't freak. It's a, it's amazing. I just kind of went along wow. with it, like you know, this was supposed to be. And uh, <laughs> you know that that little video watching watching that happen was is it's and amazing. That's recently or not too long ago? Yeah, it was two weeks ago. Wow! Oh, yeah, that's that very recent. Down. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's you know that that's again that those some of those things that you don't expect, and it's right. it's wonderful. It was just a wonderful feeling to watch the crowd all laugh and be part of that you know, in, in enjoyment. Um, but it's, you know, it's, we're not the kind of band that just stands up there and plays. Uh, you know, we definitely get the audience involved and I do things that, you know, most rock, you know, musicians and performers don't do, which is a lot of stuff with magic and visual effects and things, you know, fire and smoke and, you know, uh, magic tricks that, that are, are unique, you know, and, and sort of fit what the song's talking about. So that, you know, that keeps me busy too, kind of coming up with, you know, new, new props and new magic tricks that I can incorporate that, you know, are, are part of what this act is. And then, um, outside of that, I've got some other ideas for films that I've been kind of working on in the school, you know, working at the university, uh, teaching these classes, you know, I kind of have to spearhead anywhere from 30 to 50 movies over the the semester. So, you know, you're trying to help guide these, these young, you know, filmmakers. And at the same time, try to step back and let them have their vision, you know, right or wrong. It's like, okay, if you do this, here's all the things that could go wrong. But if you can figure out how to get around that, I, you'll be my hero. You know, I'd love to see you do it, you know, but there's certain restrictions that you have to maintain, you know, that are safety things or insurance things. I mean, things that, you know, that, that the school, you know, can't be responsible if something, you know, happens. And lots of times, you know, you, you kind of have to protect them from themselves. But at the same time, there's some incredible work that comes out from some of these students and other ones still got a lot to learn, especially working with actors. You know, that's, that's probably the toughest thing is not knowing what to say to an actor or what to do to make the actor feel not self-conscious, you know, about, you know, the, what they're, what they're performing or what they're saying. So that, you know, is also something that's, you know, puts a lot of anxiety in me of trying, trying to get somebody else to get their vision and, and feeling somehow responsible because you're, you know, you're the professor. I'm supposed to, you know, be able to, to guide you, you know, the, the student. So that's, that's a whole different universe that I never expected to get into. Well, Tom, congratulations on all of this. All these years later, you're still doing things that you love and enjoy, and you're doing it exceptionally well. There's no question about it. Um, I believe there's a website for your band that you're a part of, mm-hmm. and I, uh, I'm sure that there's also sh- social media pages for people to come visit you. Yeah, um, yeah. Anytime I, you know, I love hearing from people and responding back. Um, my the Facebook is under Tommy McLaughlin um, on Facebook, and then uh, the band is uh, www.thesloths.org. Uh, um, kind of keeps an update on all the stuff that's going on with the band, as does you know my my Facebook. Um, and then um, you know if you really want to know a lot more about the other movies and you know kind of more about my background, there is this book that's available on Amazon uh, that you can get in a number of different forms. 
still want to do an audio book one of these days, but that, that I mentioned before, you know, strange idea of entertainment conversations with Tom McLaughlin that's out there on Amazon. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a fun read and it kind of, if you're want to be a filmmaker, it gives you a lot of insight into that world. And, you know, me working with all these different stars from, you know, Kirk Douglas and Craig T. Nelson to, you know, the, you know, a lot of the, you know, up and coming um, stars like Hilary Swank. Um, well, she's more than an up and coming star. She's <laughs> after two Oscars. She's, but I she's still done think pretty good. Young girl. Yeah, she's done very good for herself. So there's been a lot of people that, you know, you work with in their early, early days. And it's, you know, it's a really wonderful to see them, you know, their careers really take off. Um, but then, you know, working with the great classical you know, actors who came out of theater or the ones that are just, you know, famous character actors. That's, that's all I talk about too, in the book, uh, you know, all those different relationships and, and things. And, uh, you know, how there's certain movies that are very personal, um, that I didn't even realize how personal they were until somebody else kind of looked at them and said, you know, you realize you, this was going on in your life when you were doing this or that. And Joe Madri did an amazing job at, you know, finding things that I didn't even realize you know, about the work. So, um, you know, it's an interesting read from that standpoint and lots of pictures are big on a lot of having visual things in there. So it's a lot of, you know, showing the stuff as well as talking about it. Well, sounds all so wonderful. And, and I should add that, um, listening to your description there, that you have been around the industry for enough years to see people come a long way. This, this, you know, of course, some have left the industry, or perhaps some are unfortunately no longer with us. But you, uh, as we were talking about Hillary, you've seen people grow as artists and and achieve many things, and and, and what an incredible experience that must be for you. So I'd like to say congratulations to you. And Tom, before we conclude, I must say to you that you know, uh, back in the eighties, once again, you know, when I discovered the joys of acting, I used to record on a cassette recorder so even before cds and pretend that i was doing my own radio show and mm -hmm. if that little boy would have known that all these years later he'd be having one of the directors from the friday 13th franchise on on a, a podcast talk show he would have uh, been extremely excited so uh, i just want to say what an I, honor it's been having you on this show i i really really have enjoyed speaking with you today Thank you. And then, then, you know, thank you for, for your questions. You have some wonderful, wonderful questions and you're certainly a very, you know, comfortable man to speak with, which is always great, you know, to, you know, help, helps the person to open up and, you know, want to talk and, you know, you have, a, you have a great personality that way. So thank you. Well, thank you. That, that means uh, so much to me. Thank you. And all my best to the cast members from Jason Lives. And uh, who knows, I'd love to have some of them uh, come by and visit me as well, because you, you really did uh, do a, a, a fantastic job with, with that film. And, and thanks for sharing so many memories. Thank you. And to all the listeners, I want to thank you as well for listening today. I'll tell you what, what a sentimental interview experience. And I've just had such a wonderful time, and I, I'm sure all of you have as well. I would like to say that speaking with Tom reminds me that whatever artistic project you might be working on, whatever you do, don't give up. This is host Stephen Brittingham, and I'll catch you on another episode of Hollywood and Beyond. <laughs>
Host Stephen Brittingham, your comments and questions to Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. That is Hollywood and Beyond Show at gmail.com. Stephen looks forward to hearing from you soon. <laughs>